Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 33, where we're traveling back to 1975, and the 30th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Dominic Argento, for From the Diary of Virginia Woolf. So, Andrew, I'm going to ask you two questions oh, here two. on this one. Yeah. Okay. So, what are your past experiences with Dominic Argento as well as Virginia Woolf? So, Dominic Argento is a name I know. <laughs> No, I've heard people talk about his music, but I've really never listened to it. It's one of those, I know he did a lot of vocal music, some operas, but it's just never been one of those things that's come across my path. Virginia Woolf, on the other hand, Ah. (laughs) is something that's come across my path. Of course, I don't think growing up in the United States, uh, if you're our age, you could get away with not reading or talking about Mrs. Dalloway. I mean, that's the the one that I know. Or, of course, The Hours, the the movie from The Hours, which has a wonderful score by Philip Glass. (laughs) Michael Cunningham novel. Excellent novel. So that, I mean, very familiar with Virginia Woolf. Dominic Argento, the name I know. What about you? Uh, uh, Somewhat similar. I remember at an undergrad, though, we, and I played horn in all the operas. And I think the year, either my senior year or the year after I graduated, they were going to do the Aspern papers. Oh, sure. Because Argento was kind of a, a hot thing at there the There was a little bit of in the 90s where yeah, people the 90s. were really into Argento. Mm-hmm. And that was the only, the only thing I'd heard about him. And he was from Minnesota, or not from, but... Uh, worked in Minnesota. Worked in Minnesota and was very influential there. So that's all I knew. I hadn't heard a lick of his music <laughs> <laughs> until now. Well, maybe we should go back and tell the story. Telling the story. All right, so Argento, born to Italian parents in uh, York, Pennsylvania, 1927. Uh, Fascinatingly, his first kind of interest in music was George Gershwin. Mm -hmm. So we talk about influences on people. We'll see if there's an influence of George Gershwin on his music. Uh, Taught himself harmony and composition, take piano lessons. But this is the factoid that I had to talk about. I love this. Was that in the military in World War II, he was a cryptographer in North Africa. I just love that little factoid. We we can talk about a lot of these composers of this age, like Milton Babbitt, same thing, working as cryptography because they have that mathematical mind because of their work in music. I Mm -hmm. love this little factoid about him. Yeah, that is fascinating. And, and, in a sense, I'd like to know maybe more of his music if there are these kind of hidden things or if number he, games, yeah, number or, games yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Because he did, as we're going to find out, he did had interest in twelve tone music and some of the other really uh, current compositional techniques at the time. Uh, but of course, he's our second Italian. You know, Minotti was a real native Italian. Right. Uh, Argento was uh, American, American from Italian parents. Yes, from Italian parents, but. Uh, he also went to Italy and studied with Dalla Piccola, which makes a lot of sense that he would come back with some 12-tone uh, music uh, because Dalla Piccola is kind of a, at least when I teach 20th century theory or post-tonal theory, he's a little more user-friendly 
because there's at least there's usually some lyricism. Well, that's, and, the, that's the thing with Dal Pico. Yeah. It's, it's 12 tone in the harmonies, but the lyricism is still, it's still Italian melodies. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so I think he really picked up on that. We're going to hear that a lot mm-hmm. in this piece. Uh, then he, he actually has a doctorate, a PhD from Eastman and studied earlier with Henry Cowell. Uh, but has a PhD from Eastman and then became a composer comp professor at University of Minnesota. And I thought this was also interesting. I have seen the Minnesota opera before and had no idea that he was one of the co-founders. Mm-hmm. So opera, vocal music, those were all really big influences on him. But it also shows that, I mean, we've been talking about this trend away from kind of the old boys club, the yeah. New York Ivy League. And so here's a composer who lived his life in the Midwest working in Minnesota teaching in Minnesota, founding Minnesota Opera, right? Very grounded. And that may be one of the things why at Illinois, there's like this va- this vogue for him in the 1990s because he's just right there. Yeah, right? Big Ten composer Big in Ten a way. Big Ten composer. Yeah. So interesting background. That's just a great point. I, it's He's not the traditional type of composer we've seen, not the Elliot Carter who's like right. the stereotypical archetypal person. Um, but very interested, as we mentioned, his uh, credo, I think, says a lot about what we're going to talk about. I believe that art and music especially is a form of communication. And I think that's borne out by writing so much vocal music. A lot of vocal Have music. Have we seen a composer? Not since Minotti. No, no. Another he's, Italian. <laughs> no, they're Italian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like 14 opera, song cycles, choral works. I mean, that's what he's known for. Yeah. I like the rest of his credo, too, where he says that I think it, art, is less a matter of communication between the artist and the viewer, reader, or listener than a matter of communication between the viewer, reader, or listener and himself. Mm. So it's not about that I, as the composer, am communicating with you. It's what are you telling yourself when you experience this art, which is a different kind of communication than we typically think of. Oh, the composer writes something, and I get what the composer wants me to get. He's saying, no, I'm setting up a situation where you talk to yourself and get something unique to you out of this art which is very kind of postmodern yeah, idea. Yeah. Uh, I think you can see that here in the 1970s, we've kind of moved into a new phase that we've talked a little bit about mm-hmm. uh, on the podcast before. Do you, th- you mean there's actually a role for the listener? Sitting back in the <laughs> easy chair? <laughs> as, With sugar plum ears? <laughs> Ives would say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, this piece actually comes from a commission, which a lot of Argento's music did. And it was originally a commission for Jesse Norman. There's three famous singers here. So, yeah, go ahead. Jesse Norman. Yeah, originally this was for Jesse Norman, 1972. The Schubert Club of St. Paul said, we want you to write this piece. He said, all right, I'm going to do this. And he took some of Sappho's love letters. He was all set to go. But then Jesse Norman was like, nope, not doing it. (laughs) So they were true diva form. True diva form. So they went, well, if we can't get Jesse Norman, I guess we'll go for Beverly Sills. And he went, well, Sappho's not workable for Beverly mm-hmm. Sills. He said, I need something, you know, that's going to be more fitting this coloratura that she has. Um, and he said, so I think I'll do a pastiche of Shakespearean heroines. That's what I'll do for her. She's very um, good actress. Dramatic. Very yeah. dramatic. And then, of course, Sills cancels. <laughs> and so they're like, okay, Janet Baker. So they basically go through three of the biggest yeah. names of the time to finally settle on Janet Baker and so he got rid of the Shakespearean heroines and said, I'm going to focus on Virginia Woolf. But I think it also shows that we typically think, oh, you're the composer. You have this flash of inspiration. This is very practical. I'm getting a commission. It's for a person. I want to connect the text and the sound with that person's abilities. 
And so you go from Sappho to mm -hmm. Shakespeare to Virginia Woolf. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it kind of shows working for the Czech, uh, even though he was employed as a professor, but this is working on a commission and trying to tailor it to the right person. And we mentioned the Virginia Woolf before with uh, Mrs. Dalloway, but the text of this uh, is... It, it, I couldn't find them online because everywhere I looked, it said redacted because of copyright. The Virginia so, Woolf estate is out yeah, in force. Yeah, so I couldn't find them. But uh, reading about the piece enough, uh, he was attracted to her uh, pure, clear, immaculate choice of words, original ideas, direct communication of thought through words with no fat, no padding, and above all, honest. So these are all clips. They're not actual full diary entries, but excerpts from uh, diaries across a number of years. Yeah, because there are diaries that were published after Virginia Woolf passed. So her husband picked up all these things because she had 26 volumes wow. of diaries when she dies. So her husband publishes these, and they really go from the very beginning of her writing career up until her death. Um, or this, she drowned herself. Or she drowned herself. Yeah. So 1941, <laughs> yeah. she walks out with rocks in her pocket and... <laughs> What a life. Uh, <laughs> a fascinating, fascinating life. And so what Argento did was to take texts from just chronologically as you go through this song cycle, but take these texts and set them to music here for Janet Baker. Well, maybe we should uh, figure out what's going on behind those notes. Behind the notes. Well, I don't know about you, Andrew, but when I was listening to this piece, I was kind of pushed in a lot of different directions because uh, it would, you'd hear these really aggressive, there's a movement called Anxiety, for example, or a song called Anxiety, uh, very aggressive sounding, dissonant, and then there would be this lush, tonal, f functionally tonal mm -hmm. even, sections that would just keep going back and forth. So uh, very interesting. And thinking about it as a song cycle, I should mention... Another first on hearing the Pulitzers. That's right. This is our first song cycle. Uh, it was intended to show, as, as you just mentioned earlier, her life kind of mm -hmm. through these diaries in the same way that Schumann uh, in Frauenliebe und Leben, which is now it's uh, the, the text is seen as not very... It's not the quality of some of his other song no, cycles. No, no. The music is gorgeous, but there, there are some issues with the text. But uh, in this case, it kind of shows her her mood and mm -hmm. perspective and he's he's really tailored the music toward that so what were your thoughts listening to just those like that yeah i mean the same way so it's we should mention it's an eight song cycle mm -hmm. um so the diary which is the first excerpt is actually from the first diary that was published uh and number eight is the last entry <laughs> which is the last thing she wrote before she walked out into the river uh, and then between there anxiety fancy hardy's funeral rome war parents so just by this one word titles, you get this, I think, kaleidoscopic vision of her life. And I think what you're saying is exactly right, that these moves, the shifting and the music mirrors that. So you get it's just kind of all over the place. Yeah. And actually, the anxiety that you mentioned is one of my favorite of the uh, yeah. favorite the excerpts. So I want to play just uh, the opening of that anxiety uh, movement. This is movement two. Mm -hmm. I look down if you giddy, 
So I love that it's just like perpetual motion. Um, There's this great dissonance to it. The singer is just chewing the words to get them all out. I I really like that. That movement in particular really grabbed me as I was listening to it. But some of the other movements, I think, were not as successful in kind of encapsulating really with the music what the text is trying to say. Mm -hmm. So I thought that the anxiety is really, really excellent at that. Um, Some of the other movements were not as much. But what was good in terms of my perception of it was that it did feel, though, of one piece. Yes. So it felt like it was a song cycle that hung together from beginning to end. I didn't feel like he just threw a bunch of movements together. It did have an arc. It had uh, ideas that connected everything together. Yes, and that he, I think that's even explicitly stated somewhere, maybe in his notes or in an interview I read later, uh, that the first, like Schumann's actually, the first movement and the last movement have similar musical materials and so you can it is kind of that cycle and closure that you need uh i i also kind of felt a little bit drifting in the middle um because part of it was the fact that i I had listened to a couple different recordings there was a i heard a a male voice and a Hmm. a female voice and they were very different the female voice or the, the woman singing it i thought was i couldn't understand her diction so it was hard to understand the the man singing i felt was a little more I don't know, seem to capture it a bit more, but there's a lot of time, like a lot of space mm-hmm. and in the middle, especially maybe that's what happened is, you know, he tried to cover it, but just a lot of you know, thin piano textures and not much happening. Well, I think that also plays into, so we talked about Dalla Piccola and the 12 tone that you do have 12 tone writing in here. Yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, the very opening, I thought it'd be useful kind of to hear that opening and hear the 12-tone row that he's going to use to unify the, the piece completely. Uh, and then we can listen a little bit to the echoes at the end when he comes back to give you a sense of how, how the cycle works just in terms of musically holding together. So here's the opening of the diary. So that melody is going to come back at the end of the last, uh, the last entry, the very last movement of the cycle. So here you get what we were just talking about this. 12-tone piano writing and then this kind of beautiful lyrical line that's still doing the 12-tone melody. It's still the the pitches of the 12-tone yeah. row, uh, but he presents it so beautifully and lyrically in the voice. Yeah, it, it is. there's still the same manipulations that you would find in Schoenberg or Webern with your inversion, retrograde inversion, all the different forms. But somehow it's interwoven in a way that's much more accessible and allows the lyricism to 
come out from it. Well, it's also very dramatic. Uh, yeah. I mean, you yeah. hear that, obviously, in that anxiety movement that we played uh, just a little bit of. But I think each movement is almost like this little micro drama. Part of that is because Virginia Woolf's texts are so evocative. Mm-hmm. It's a really great text to, to put music to. Uh, but he does. He kind of pulls out the the dramatic nature of each of these little moments um, in very powerful ways that I think of successful singing of it. So Janet Baker recorded this, which is really wonderful that we can hear. Was that her recording? That was her recording. Well, that sounds much better than the one I heard. So you can hear Janet Baker as she originally sang it um, and really get across that that power, uh, that psychological power that I think Argento was going for. I thought especially in the seventh movement, Parents, Mm. that's the one where I kind of stopped and looked up because I was sitting and listening at home, reading some other stuff, and then I just stopped, like, ooh, wow, what is this? Uh, very touching, very tonal, mm-hmm. and just, uh, you know, touching text uh, about her parents, and I thought that was, you know, internal reflection is a good way mm-hmm. to look at it here, kind of her, and then I guess Janet Baker, in this case, reflecting on herself and going on with Argento's credo about the listener too it made me stop exactly and, think. and it, so that hit me particularly strongly well and especially with these these more internal reflection movements like parents or war i mean those mm. i think do hit the audience in a different way than say hardy's funeral just more <laughs> externally descriptive right yeah. and so i think that those to my mind those were the more successful so anxiety <laughs> parents mm-hmm. war those were the more to me successful because they are dealing with the internal and you as a listener can take that in and, and reflect on that and come to your own meaning for it. And let's think about when this was written, too. So this is kind of the end of the Vietnam War and a time when the U.S. was kind of, you know, 1974, 75 was with Nixon. And there's a lot of stuff going on in the country, too. And I, I wonder if this is reflecting some of the anxiety and the end of life and all this stuff too. It, it sort of it made me think about that when this was written. So all the turmoil, the turmoil going yeah. on in the, in the United States at the time yeah, being reflected in the music. Yeah, exactly. And it also might be one reason why the Pulitzer Committee was attracted to it because it kind of fit the psychological state of yeah. the United States at this particular time in history. Definitely. Well, let's see what the uh, critics and everybody had to say. Hit or miss. All right, well, we always start with what the committee had to say, so time to pull out the committee report. Okay, so this was uh, premiered at the, as you said earlier, the Schubert Club on Sunday, January 5th, 1975 in Minneapolis. Interesting program here. We have Mozart, Exultate Jubilate. Then we have this piece, which is quite long, I might add, for a song cycle. It's it about, I mean, it's not dictatorly, but, but the, it's, it's about 40 minutes, almost 35 minutes. Uh, then Intermission, Four Wolf Songs, Foray, Du Parc, and Debussy. So uh, a lot of, a, a leader concert. And then... All right, the report of the music jury, confidential. Dominic Argento's from the Diary of Virginia Woolf for medium voice and piano was commissioned, blah, blah, blah. Uh, It impressed the music jury as a work in the tradition of the great song cycles, which speaks in a contemporary individualistic musical language of great eloquence and immediate appeal. 
At best, Virginia Woolf is a difficult writer. I think we agree with that. Argento succeeds remarkably in capturing the immediate and implied meanings of her work and clothes her prose with a poetic aura of exquisite loveliness. So the other two, this is very interesting. So George Rockberg was a second was the runner up. A, a piece called Imago Mundi, uh, which impressed the music jury, has Japanese gagaku music in it, atonal harmony, blah blah blah. And then this is very interesting. This report by the music jury is provisional, pending an evaluation of Gunther Schuller's Triplum II for orchestra on April 8, 1975, which was premiered on February 26th, since no tape of this complex score was available on the date the jury met. So maybe maybe uh, Gunther Schuller was going to win, but... They couldn't get a they copy. They couldn't of get it. a copy of it. Well, Gunther Schuler, of course, a very well known to the Pulitzer jury at this yes. point. He had served on the Pulitzer jury many times. So interesting that they wanted to give space for the old boys club <laughs> to still be able to come in. But if they can't give it to Gunther, they'll give it out to this guy from Minnesota. Yeah, and and Gunther would get it later. So at least right. they'll they'll make up for it. Uh, the jury also has another first on it. If you recall, uh, I think it was in wasn't last year, we had our first uh, black member of the jury, mm -hmm. Ulysses K. Well, this time, Robert Ward, again, is still chair. Then we have Irving Lowens, okay. media Great. critic. Yep. And Miriam Gideon, composer. Also our first female, female composer, composer to be yes. a member of the jury. Mm -hmm. So we can see here starting to expand a little bit in terms of uh, who they're accepting on the jury. And yeah, so getting to the middle of the 1970s, and we're beginning to find that the, the Pulitzer is beginning to open up a little bit more now that we're almost 10 years past the, the great yeah. convulsions of the mid-1960s. The Pulitzer pivot, you the mean? The Pulitzer pivot. Yeah. So do we have any critic Well, the responses? problem with this being <laughs> in, the, uh, in Minnesota is that our access to our New York critics like we typically see are, is just not there. Yeah. It's harder to get access. But what we can say is that this cycle has a life. So in terms of the pieces that we've discussed on the Pulitzer, really the past 10 episodes, this might be the most performed of the pieces because it is a regular feature of mezzo-sopranos studying in colleges uh, across the United States. And even more, it's one of the most popular topics for mezzo-sopranos for their <laughs> thesis or dissertations yes. or their projects. So there are numerous, numerous uh, works written about by scholars about this particular piece from the performance side of things. In, in fact, we're going to put one of those documents in the show notes because I relied on it too. It was an I, Indiana University mm -hmm. uh, DMA, I think. DMA dissertation. Dissertation, yeah. yeah, all about this. So it does have a life, and I, you know, I can see why. I think of our, it's a lot easier to perform mm -hmm. than an orchestral piece. You don't have as many forces or the a weird mixture of, ensemble and the texts do speak to people pretty well so I can see that so unfortunately we don't have much to say apart from is this a hit or a miss and this is for me this is going to be complicated so this is complicated ah, okay this is complicated for me because like I said the anxiety I really enjoyed yeah. that particular movement I thought it was really really well done um, the craft I respect the craft of this particular piece but for me overall I think it's a miss it's not like if I'm doing on a scale of one to ten, <laughs> where where five is the pivot, this is like a four. Uh, it's not 
really that big of a miss. But overall, this is not one that I would keep coming back to again and again. Um, I listened to it a couple of times to get it in my head. I did enjoy listening to it, but it's not one that I would seek out. No, I, I would agree with you. I had to work at this one. Mm. I felt a lot more than... So you're more like a two or a three on our well, scale. Well, it, it got better, though. It got better the more... I, I think... I think it might benefit if we could see it mm. and if I had the actual text. So instead of trying to figure out what they're singing, uh, that may make things a little bit easier. But I, I felt it, it started out well, and then there was kind of a sag in the middle, and then it ended well. Mm. So it didn't hold my attention for the 35 minutes. And so I'll, I'll do a qualified miss by saying that I wouldn't mind seeing it, and if, if someone performed it, I would go hear it. So if you got a tape of Gunther Schuller, you might come <laughs> yeah. back to this piece later, is what you're saying. <laughs> that's right. You and the jury of one mind here. That's right, exactly, exactly. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links in a short bibliography where you can read more about Dominic Argento. Also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at hpulitzers for links between episodes. Finally, join us next episode when we'll discuss an instrumental work by a composer known for his vocal works, Ned Roram and his air music. Until then, keep listening. Keep listening.